0: Morning, everybody. It's so good to see you. Uh, As much as all the Christmas stuff that we do is is fun and exciting, I don't think anything beats being here on a regular Sunday morning and doing what we do. So it is great to... I love January, getting back into church life together. Uh, This morning, we're picking up, uh, and this is for just two more Sundays, the series that we began back in the autumn, looking at Seven Shaping Virtues. That we believe ought to always be alive and growing in every church and in every Christian believer. This morning we've come to the sixth one in the list of seven. And our theme today is servanthood. But first of all, just a brief word about bookshops. Okay, And I promise this is relevant. I know bookshops are not as popular as they used to be. But I, for one, still love going into an actual real bookshop with real books. I love the colourful display of covers the potential for unearthing some hidden treasure, the draw towards particular sections in the bookshop, looking for favourite authors and favourite genres. And back visiting my parents for a few days this Christmas time, we had the opportunity to visit a, a local independent bookshop. They're the best ones. And it was a Christmas highlight just to go in and browse. And I think you can learn quite a bit about a person by the section of the bookshop that they gravitate towards as they go in through the door. Will it be history or sports or biography or fantasy or, if they've got it, that amazing spinny stand with all the Mr. Men books on? You know that? (laughs) Every child at heart still wants that spinning stand in their home. One thing I've noticed, though, in practically all bookshops is that there's one particular section that is often alarmingly big and there's another section that is not there at all. The one that's always alarmingly big is the section on leadership, Every reasonably sized bookshop seems to have a section on leadership. Leadership sells. On Amazon, there are over 100,000 different books on leadership listed. And at least 10 new books on leadership apparently are written on average every single day. That's 3,500 titles, new titles every year. The Hunger to Lead and Be in Charge sells an awful lot of books. But here's what I think you never find in a bookshop a section on serving and servanthood. It's just not something you'll find, presumably because there is zero demand for books about servanthood. The world we live in largely does not value servanthood, certainly not enough to write and sell books about it. But when we open the Bible and read it, what we discover is that God's Word has all manner of things to say to us about servanthood, This is a theme that runs right throughout its pages. In fact, the Bible has far more to say about serving than leading. And what it does have to say about leading is in the context of servant leading. It's quite clear then that in spite of what we might see promoted in our local bookshop, servanthood ought to occupy a central place in the lives of those who follow Jesus. And that, I think, is in large part... Because in Jesus, we find three things in particular that should irresistibly compel us and inspire us towards servanthood. Three things that down the ages have transformed millions of naturally self-preoccupied people like you and me into increasingly selfless and joyful servants of God and other people. And it's these three things that we're going to look at together this morning. We're going to see that in Jesus... Christians find, firstly, a new life of service. Secondly, in Jesus, we find a new definition of greatness. And thirdly, in Jesus, we find a new example of servanthood. So those are our three headings we're going to work through this morning. First of all, a new life of service. And and to help with this one, I want to turn your attention to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 15. 2 Corinthians 3, 15, Paul writes, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, people who haven't yet heard or perhaps fully understood the message of Christianity often get this topsy-turvy and turned on its head. People often imagine that That what Christians believe is that it's our serving that saves us. That just like every other religion in the world, we must serve in order to be saved and go to heaven. But that's not the teaching of Christianity at all. That's not the gospel. That's an anti-gospel. No one was ever saved by how much good they did or by how much they served compared to how much they sinned. The idea of serving and doing good in order to be saved, that's just not Christianity, that's man-made religion. Jesus came to save sinners, not servants. He came to rescue and redeem those who have categorically failed to live selflessly for God and other people. And this is good news. He died and rose so that sinners who put their trust in him might be saved wholly and completely and to the uttermost through him. So hear it loud and clear this morning. We are not saved by whether or not we serve. And yet we mustn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We mustn't throw away servanthood as something unimportant to the Christian life simply because we're saved by grace and not by serving. Because though we're certainly not saved by serving, we most certainly are saved to serve. And that's the message of 2 Corinthians 3.15. Christ died, says Paul, that we might live a new life, and that new life, he says, consists of no longer living for ourselves, but living for him who died and was raised for us. So Jesus saves us for a new life of service. So I thought it would be helpful. Let's ask the question, If serving God and other people has nothing to do with what saves us, why is it such an important ingredient in a Christian's life once they've been saved? I've got a couple of answers. One answer is because of what we've been saved from. The essence of human sin is pride and selfishness, loving and serving ourselves. Sin once enslaved us, every one of us, to selfishness. We were enslaved to selfishness. Now, this is not to say at all that those that aren't Christians never serve other people. Some people do amazing acts of service. But as human beings, we were ultimately made to enjoy this freedom of knowing and serving our Creator. But in turning our backs on God, we essentially turned in on ourselves, becoming self-serving and becoming trapped in an ever-increasing patterns of selfishness. Much of what we see wrong in the world out there today is due to human selfishness. What this means is that salvation, for it to really be salvation, must free us from that selfishness and bring us into the freedom and the liberation and the joy of no longer living to serve ourselves. Anything less than freedom in that way would be less than true salvation, But praise God, because Christ came to do exactly that. To not just secure our forgiveness, but actually set us free. He died, it says in this verse, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. This is true freedom for us. That not only did he take on himself the punishment we deserved, but he also vanquished sin's enslaving power over us freeing us from living lives of selfishness and self-obsession and self-service. He frees us. Now, These things, they're still present in our lives, of course, but they no longer have the power to completely enslave us. We have been saved from their rule and domination. And that's one reason why servanthood is such a natural and vital ingredient in the life of a Christian, because of what we have been saved from. But a second reason I think servanthood is so central to the Christian life is because of all that we've been saved to. Just think about all the shaping virtues that we've seen in this series already so far. All these shaping virtues that flow out of the gospel's work within us. If you can remember back this far, we started with humility, which then sprung forth into these other fruits like joy and gratitude and encouragement and generosity, all things we've spent time looking at. All of these spiritual fruits and virtues planted by the Spirit of God within us will inevitably, as they grow, begin to flow out from us in all sorts of acts of service towards God and other people. These fruits will overflow in acts of service, just like boiling water overflows from a pan with a flame beneath it. And in fact, I was uh, cooking recently. Don't look so shocked. Uh, and the recipe was very specific about the need to bring the water in the saucepan to a rolling boil. And uh, I do actually do a fair bit of cooking, but I'm no expert, and I actually didn't know what a rolling boil was. And so I had to look it up. So I googled it, and I discovered, with pictures, that while a simmer is when those, you get the tiny bubbles, don't you, that are just rhythmically, gently coming to the surface, a rolling boil is when the bubbles are bursting aplenty, and as one website told me, when the water is absolutely freaking out. <laughs> a rolling boil on our hob is usually what just—it's just the bit that just precedes all the water overflowing all over the cooker top. When the Holy Spirit pours all of these shaping virtues into our hearts, like water into a pan, and then he lights his flame beneath it, we should expect them to increasingly be reaching a rolling boil. Vigorously bubbling, freaking out, and overflowing in our lives in practical service in every area of our lives. So servanthood is not an optional extra that we should only expect to see in some believers and not others. Servanthood is just the vigorously bubbling, overflowing power of the gospel at work in every Christian's life. So that's the first thing we find we are given in Jesus The true freedom of a new life of service. The second thing we find in Jesus is a new definition of greatness. And for this, to help us with this, want to turn our attention to Mark chapter ten, verse thirty-two. We read, they, this is Jesus and his disciples, were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. This is one of three occasions in Mark's gospel where Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen to him when they get to Jerusalem. The one who they've only recently begun to realize is God's promised king and rescuer is now telling them that he's soon going to be delivered into the hands of evil men. Beaten, flogged, and crucified. It is shocking news for sure. But what perhaps is even more shocking and surprising is how his disciples then respond. Mark 10, 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. (laughs) So here is Jesus who is going to suffer and lay down his life for them. But James and John are most concerned about how exalted a position they might get in his kingdom. And the other disciples are no better. We're told when the ten heard it, they began to be be indignant at James and John. So now the other disciples are getting annoyed and angry, but not because they see how wrong James and John's concept of greatness is. No, they're angry because they want that same kind of greatness for themselves. They want to be powerful and respected and obeyed and adored, to have people wait on them as they sit on thrones, maybe people serving them grapes as they rule over all. They're just cross now that they've been pipped at the post and someone else has got in with a request first. According to Luke's gospel, all 12 of them had only recently been arguing with each other about who would be the greatest disciple. All of which makes Jesus' response to them all the more remarkable. Because what he doesn't say is, listen, I'm the king. Just you remember it. I'm the boss. I'm the greatest. I've come down so that you can all serve me. Stop trying to get power and position. I want you to bow down to me. No, instead Jesus says to them, Mark 10:42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Not so with my followers, says Jesus. It shall not be so among you. And then he begins to completely turn on its head their whole philosophy of greatness. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. True greatness in Jesus's kingdom is found in being a servant. It's found not in lording it over others and having other people serve us. True greatness is achieved in becoming a servant of all. And of course, no one more powerfully and radically demonstrates this different kind of greatness better than Jesus himself. Verse 45, for even the son of man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Most of us are used to the idea of having kings with people that serve them. But this king, this king of kings, is in fact the greatest servant of all. So much is he the greatest servant of all that before he can become our example in servanthood, he has to become our savior and our substitute. He has to to serve us first before we can serve him. He has to serve us by saving us. Again, this is why servanthood for us can only come after salvation and not before. Serving cannot save us. No one was ever saved through serving. Even if they were to serve like Mother Teresa all the days of their life, without Christ, every man, woman, and child in this world stands guilty and condemned before God for rebelling against God, for turning our service in on ourselves. That's the heart of what the Bible calls sin. And we can't atone for that sin simply by pulling ourselves together and becoming more servant-hearted from now on. That won't remove the holy displeasure of God towards our sin and our selfishness. No, our only hope is that we must first be served by Christ, the servant king, that we would accept his life as our ransom, his death as the atonement for our sins. Only once we've run to him to be saved, can we answer the call to follow in his footsteps and become servants like him, to pursue true greatness like him. Now perhaps, maybe precisely because he knew his death was so unique, and it would be such a unique and unrepeatable act, one that his disciples could not Imitate or copy. Maybe this is the reason that the day before he laid down his life for them, he knelt down on the floor with a towel and washed their feet for them, setting them a vividly new example of servanthood. And that's the third thing we see this morning a new example of servanthood. And for this, we're going to go over to John chapter 13, verse 4. Uh, and this is so the day before Jesus dies. At uh, the time of the Last Supper, we're told Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Uh, now, foot washing, I don't think pleasant at the best of times, even in our modern day. But, of course, back then it was far worse, and it was normally reserved for the most menial of servants because... Sandal-covered feet, and here's just another great reason not to uh, wear sandals too often, Okay, especially not with socks, but I guess they didn't have socks. Sandal-covered feet would pick up all the dirt and the dust and the dung that was out on the streets of Jerusalem to the point where feet were encrusted and ingrained with all manner of filth. The disciples would not, in a month of Sundays, have volunteered to wash each other's feet. It was considered so demeaning that some Jews insisted that even a Jewish slave would not be required to wash the feet of others. The job had to be given to a Gentile slave only. So the disciples are shocked. They would be shocked if any one of them would do something so unfitting and unbecoming. But they're shocked most of all because it's the Lord himself who gets down. And you hear the shock in Peter's response. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So what's Jesus doing here? He is giving his disciples a vivid demonstration of his love. A love that will soon take him all the way to Calvary to die for them, but a love that will also act to serve them in the smallest and most seemingly insignificant ways as well. Like washing the dirt from their feet. But it's not just a demonstration of his love for them, not just a demonstration, it's also an example of how their love should be demonstrated towards each other. And so John carries on, he said to them, Jesus said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. And I love what Philip Rykin writes about this. He says, Jesus Christ is the supreme ruler of everything there is, the Lord God of heaven and earth. Nevertheless, in spite of his high and majestic greatness, or maybe because of it, he takes the lowest place. This is the greatest possible condescension, the Son of God and Lord of the universe kneeling to serve and then stooping to save. He carries on, if Jesus has done this for us, then we should do the same for others. The logical and practical conclusion to what Jesus did and said is that we are called to serve the way the great one served and to love the way that he loves. He finishes, we are not greater than Jesus is. In fact, we are much less. Therefore, it is even more fitting for us to take the lowest place. If we are followers of a foot-washing saviour, then no act of service could ever be beneath our dignity. As Christians, we're called to love one another the way Christ loves us. And the essence of Christ-like love is humble, sacrificial service. Giving ourselves for the good of others. Putting the needs of others before ourselves. So what does this look like in practice? Day-to-day, what does it look like when the rubber hits the road? How do we put this into practice? I thought it might be helpful to to identify three key areas or spheres of service in our life in which we can follow Jesus. And then I thought we'll go on to briefly address three common obstacles that often stand in the way of our serving. So first of all, three key areas to, to have on our radar, to have categories for as we think about practicing servanthood. Uh, The first of them is meeting everyday needs. In Jesus' own example in John 13, it, it begins with him identifying a simple, practical, everyday need. A task that needs doing, that no one else has offered to do or wants to do. He sees a way to bless those that he's with and he takes it. It's not glamorous. This act is not life or death or world changing at all. At the end of the day, it's just washing feet. But it's a real tangible need, and Jesus himself does not hesitate to tie a towel around his waist and stoop down and meet it. Oftentimes, we might find it much easier to give ourselves to the big, profound gestures of love and service, the ones that really seem worth our time and effort, the ones that get our servanthood noticed. But the reality is it's the small stuff that surrounds us each day that provide us with the most frequent opportunities to serve just like Christ did. Very simple things like cooking another meal for our family. Providing food for someone who's sick. Maybe looking after children, your your own or someone else's. Showing simple hospitality, changing nappies, shopping for an elderly neighbor. Arriving early on a Sunday to sweep the floor. Feeding hungry students on a Sunday afternoon and they are always hungry and we like that we love it maybe offering to do someone's washing when their machine breaks down pulling over to help someone change a tire putting items into the food bank again for the third or the tenth or the hundredth time this year it's hard to give a comprehensive list because there are as many needs as there are people in our lives and it's not like it's a checklist to get through I've got 10 things, and if I tick them all off, I can stop serving. No, it's a dynamic thing that changes with the ever-changing needs of those around us. It's simply following in our Lord's footsteps. Again, this is freedom, following in his footsteps with a happy willingness to meet even the smallest everyday needs of other people wherever we find them. A second place to pursue Christ-like service is in serving the gathered church. Every Christian plays a part here when we come together on a Sunday morning. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 20 says, As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And because we're one body, Paul goes on to say, everyone has a part to play in showing care for one another. So wherever we find opportunities to care for one another here on a Sunday morning, Even if it's just meeting the needs of one or two or three people on a given Sunday, maybe with a kind word or a prayer or a coffee or a welcome, it has the effect of doing good to the whole body. We are one body. It might seem small and insignificant, but our small contributions here on a Sunday morning are actually of eternal worth. No exaggeration because it serves the gathering of God's people as we come to be spiritually fed and built up together. You might just be sweeping the floor or laying out the chairs, but you are playing a part in God's people coming together to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have a part to play when we gather as a church. And a third place to devote ourselves to Christ-like service is in giving our time and attention to other people giving others our time and attention because we have to remember serving is not always about meeting practical needs uh, some of us some of us perhaps have more of a bent to going for the practical serving needs some of us perhaps have more of a bent for going for the relational needs but we should all bear in mind sometimes serving is about relationship maybe greeting one another warmly when it's easier just to walk on by being quick to listen and slow to talk about ourselves. Speaking words of encouragement to one who feels discouraged. Weeping with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Praying with someone in need. Just remember this is a challenge for me, just remembering when someone shares something with us one time, remembering that so that next time we see them, we can follow up and ask how they're doing. If you're anything like me, thinking on all of these things, I know you'll be feeling challenged in many of them. Personally, I feel like my sentiment far outstrips my practice, if that makes any kind of sense. I, like, I think what I mean is I like to think of myself as servant-hearted. Yes, I want to be a servant. But I, do, I think of myself like that much more than I actually practice servanthood. And so I thought it would be helpful, maybe for me at least, but I hope for you as well, before we finish, to identify three common heart-level obstacles that can often stand in the way of our serving more wholeheartedly. And then for each of these obstacles, I just want to sort of point out and, and, and draw our attention to the gospel remedy, the gospel remedy for each of these obstacles. So common obstacle number one, being selective in the ways we'll serve. I'm sure we've all been faced with certain needs that, frankly, we thought were below us. Maybe certain jobs at home or at work or here at church that we feel we're just too skilled or too gifted or too important to stoop down and do. Or perhaps we still do do them, but we're beginning to resent having to do them. It might be things like cleaning the toilet, mopping up sick, helping In the crèche, changing nappies, clearing away dishes, uh, taking the minutes in a meeting, picking up the litter, hanging out flags in the rain, loading up the trailer on yet another Sunday—whether it's whether it's here or at home or in the workplace—all sorts of things that maybe we just feel really are below us. We shouldn't have to do. The list could go on and on for these kind of tasks, but the gospel provides us with the remedy. The gospel frees us from being selective or ever having to think about whether a job is beneath us. For our Lord scrubbed the dirt from his disciples' feet, and he also took upon himself the filthy stain of all our sin. He made himself nothing for us. He came as a servant of all. And who of us would really want to consider ourselves to be in any way above our king? And so seeing that he served, we'll count it all honor to serve. Seeing how he gave, we'll count it a joy to give. Seeing how he stooped low, we'll count it better than all earthly accolades to stoop down low like him. And so the gospel and our Savior's example set us free from being selective in the ways that we'll serve. And the gospel empowers us instead to serve others wherever and whenever there is a need. Okay, obstacle number two, being selective about the people we'll serve. Perhaps the challenge for for us at times is not so much what we won't do, but who we won't do it for. We can fall into the trap of being willing to serve some people more readily than others. Uh, Consciously or unconsciously, before we serve, we might be asking ourselves the question, do I like this person? Do I get on with them? Are Are they similar to me? Are they very different to me? Have they ever served me? Do they do things for me? Will they be grateful and appreciative if I do serve them? Questions like those. Really what we're doing is deliberating over whether someone is worthy of our help. But again, the gospel comes to the rescue and provides us with the remedy. Because the love of Christ does away with all question of worthiness and unworthiness. While we were his enemies, completely unworthy... Christ died for us. Christ demonstrated his love by choosing to serve the most wretched, ungrateful, ungodly, hell-deserving sinners there have ever been, you and me. And so the gospel has nothing to do with love for the worthy. From beginning to end, it's a story of love for the most unworthy and undeserving of people. And so it sets us free from being selective in who we will now go forward to love and serve. And the third obstacle, serving to be seen. Serving to be seen. Oftentimes, oftentimes, of course, actually when we're serving, people will see us. And that's fine and that's, that's good. Uh, it's hard to serve invisibly. <laughs> uh, that would kind of limit us. But sometimes our motives are such that we'll choose, at least in part, to serve in order to be seen. And that's quite different. That is a problem. Maybe one way to spot this in ourselves is to ask whether we find ourselves reluctant to serve in ways that others probably won't see or admire. It might seem far easier and might seem more appealing to serve others publicly in things like leading, preaching, playing in a band, heading up an event, heading up a team at work or in all those other places and roles where we know people will see what we do and hopefully they'll even thank us and commend us for serving them. Even when we serve behind the scenes without being seen, we can still be tempted to drop what we've done into a conversation afterwards, to make sure people know just how generous we've been in our serving. I've, I'll share this. I've made this mistake a number of times as a husband, uh, where I have nobly done some job that Lizzie does every day, but, I, but I've done it today, and, uh, and I've got to make sure she knows about it, and I'm expecting a great fanfare. And um, uh, She doesn't look that impressed. She's very gracious, though. Uh, but the temptation is there. The problem is that serving others to be seen actually becomes self-serving. And Jesus warns his listeners in Matthew 6 verse 1 about self-serving service. Here's what he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Now this This is a difficult one to battle, I think. Even if we have a genuine heart to serve, we can all still find ourselves craving other people's praise and approval. But here's how the gospel provides us with yet another remedy. The gospel reminds us that if we have been united to Christ by faith, then we never need try and impress anybody ever again. In Christ, we have been completely accepted and justified clothed in his righteousness made fit to be god's child and not because of how we've served but because of how he has served and so there's no longer any need to gain acceptance in the eyes of god or other people by what we do there is no more need for self-promotion we're free all the love and acceptance we could ever need is ours already in abundance in christ jesus And so now we can serve others freely and generously, often without any notice or thanks. We can serve utterly secure in Christ's love for us. We can serve to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1. So there then are three, I think, of the most common and persistent heart-level obstacles to serving like Jesus, but each one of them is amply met and overcome as we meditate on the gospel and apply its remedies. Finally, before we close, just one more word of encouragement for us, which I think is important, and that is let's be careful not to place or find our identity as Christians in how we serve or that we serve. Serving is one fruit of our salvation, but it's not the heart and soul of it. John Hindley, in his excellent book, I love the title actually, it's it's Serving Without Sinking, How to Serve Christ and Keep Your Joy. He writes this, Jesus does not want you to measure your life by your service of him. He does not want your service to get in the way of your love for him. He did not come to be served by you. He came to serve you. So, So I might right now serve as a pastor and sometimes a chair putter outer, you might serve by cooking meals for those in need or playing guitar or leading a group, but none of those serving opportunities are intrinsic to who we are as Christians. If I stop being a pastor tomorrow and you stop being able to cook, uh, bake cakes for people tomorrow, we are no less a part of God's church and no less beloved children of the King. And we should also, if those things those opportunities are taken from us, be no less in love with him because we're no longer serving in those ways. No, our true identity is in Christ, not in our serving. All our acceptance and our joy and our worth are in him. And each of our lives will be a life very well lived so long as we serve wherever he sees fit at any given time to call us. As good stewards of God's varied grace, 1 Peter 4, verse 10. And one day soon, one day soon, not because of the precise ways we have served, but simply for the fact that we served, we will receive his commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. And that, in the end, is the only commendation that a follower of Christ needs to hear. If we don't know it for sure already, we'll know on that day when we hear those words from his very lips, that every sacrifice here on earth in the service of our King was of infinite and eternal worth in the end. Let me finish with these words, words from Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are... Are serving the Lord Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, the Prince of Glory, the one through whom and for whom all things were created. You sent him not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, please forgive us this morning for where. In spite of his selfless servanthood, we still so often live our lives centered on ourselves. Primarily concerned with serving ourselves. Lord, we thank you that at the cross, Christ took the punishment for all our selfishness, past, present and future. Oh Lord, we praise you this morning. That for every one of us who has sought forgiveness and refuge in Jesus, we have received this gift of new life with him. A new life of service and servanthood following in the footsteps of our King. Father, we pray, please help us to follow him. Help us to follow the example that he set for us. Not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, but joyfully and eagerly because we love him and are increasingly able to love like him. And Lord, as we continue to serve each day with the gifts and in the strength that you provide, we pray that you might receive all of the glory for your work in our lives. May our lives and our serving lead others to discover the serving, saving love of Christ for themselves. May our example bring them to their knees before Jesus as they place their trust in him. We pray these things in the name of Christ, the servant king. Amen.